listening to the Pros and Content Podcast brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform. This episode is part of our data-driven marketing leader series hosted by Notch co-founder and CEO, Anda Gonska. In these interviews, we chat with CMOs, VPs, and others who are ahead of the curve when it comes to both content and data and how they use both to move their businesses forward. We reveal really unique perspectives on the importance and intersection of measurement and content, as well as a ton of fun personal stories and career advice from these incredible leaders. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Andrew Bolton. Welcome to the Data Driven CMO. I'm here with Udi Lediger, who is the Chief Evangelist at Gong. Very happy to have him on the show to learn a little bit about his uh, world of marketing and what's going on at Gong. So welcome to the show, Udi. Hey, Andrew. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, first question, as always, is just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. What attracted you to marketing in general and eventually brought you to Gong? Yeah, I guess my first fascination in the professional world with marketing was through my product management position way back. So I was a product manager for five years in a company that did not have a marketing function as we think of it today. And so I ended up doing both the standard product management work and a lot of what we now call marketing. At some point, I realized I loved the customer facing side more than I wanted to write specs for engineers where to put the cancel button and what color it should be. So I went to my CEO at the time and said, hey, I think we need a full-time marketing function because I'm feeling this gap and product management would do a lot better if we had a full-time marketing function. And guess what? I've got just the guy for you. And uh, I kind of invented that role and offered to transition away from product management, recruit someone to replace me before I make that transition and then go and build a marketing function. And uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, he said yes. So that was back in 2005. So 18 years ago, I took on my first head of marketing role. And uh, since then, I've built five marketing teams at different companies. And before this recent one, I uh, did consulting for a couple of dozen companies. For the last six and a half years, I've been leading the Gong marketing team. I was employee number 13 at Gong, marketer number one. I was very fortunate to build a team of about 60 over the course of six and a half years. And three months ago, uh, we brought in an awesome new CMO who's seen the next level of growth of where Gong is going from a few hundreds of millions to billion dollar in revenue. And uh, I took a new seat as chief evangelist at Gong, which I'm happy to talk more about. So that's been the nutshell version of my journey so far. That's fantastic. I think there's a lot of marketers that are like you started off doing something very different, maybe didn't start you know, go studying marketing in school, you know, they worked in different fields. I was talking to someone the other day who was an engineer and then got into marketing. I'm curious, like for those who maybe are kind of starting their their journey in marketing, do you have any kind of advice or kind of thoughts from those early days of where you're making that transition to thinking about product to thinking more about marketing? I think it's really about tapping into what excites you. What are you passionate about? I know those are kind of big questions that were holds to think about and it's kind of hard. Here's a more practical, easy way. When you have a good day at work, try to think at the end of the day, like what made this a good day? What did I really get excited about? For someone, it might be doing half a day of budgeting work because they're really passionate about spreadsheets. For me, it's getting on stage in front of 700 sales leaders and delivering a keynote. Or as I joke, my husband always appreciates it when I get an opportunity to lecture outside of our home. 
So I, I know I love speaking opportunities. So any role that I'm really going to enjoy is going to involve a lot of speaking opportunities. For others, it might be people leadership. So think about that good day you had at work. What made it a good day? What activities filled that day? And that can start to shape what you might want a future role to look like. And then depending on where you are in your career and industry and company, you might be able to craft your own role. That's kind of the path that I followed. I thought about it and, and discussed this with one of our sales leaders last week. Turns out that all of my roles for the last 20 plus years, I created them. I was the first in role. I was the first marketer at five companies. I'm the first chief evangelist at Dong. I was the first product manager at the company I, I told you about just now. I created all of my roles because I found the right opportunity of someone who was willing to take a chance on me, probably made a decent case for myself <laughs> and why they should take this leap of faith on someone who's never done this role for them. At least that was the case for my first product management role and chief evangelist role. And just go and build it. And in other cases, you can find a close fit between the hundreds of thousands of open roles out there. There's got to be one that's a reasonable good fit for your passion and skills and what people are looking for. And always remember that when folks publish a, a wanted ad with that infamous 12 bullet points, they don't seriously expect someone to come in and answer every single one of those bullet points. So even if you answer a few of them that are the essence of the role, go for it, try and, and apply for the role. Worst case is they say yes, and then you can go in and build that role to suit your needs as well as the company's. So just take a chance and don't assume that the folks opening the role know what they need better than you know what they need and what you can do for them. Yeah, and I'm assuming that coming to a company like Gong so early on, what you first signed up for is probably not what you were doing six months, 12 months. It was constantly evolving and kind of building and growing there. Like what was that experience like and any kind of interesting lessons from growing from like a small team to a, a 60 person team? Yeah. So my, my shortcut into Gong was that our CEO and co-founder, Amit Bendov and I had worked together at two previous companies. So this was the second time he hired me directly and third time we worked together for the same company. Mm -hmm. So he kind of knew what he was getting into, the poor guy. But yeah, we started the journey when he called me in, in 2016. He said, hey, Udi, remember the crazy idea I told you about? We built that product and we rolled it out to 12 beta customers. And within three months, 11 of the 12 turned into paying customers. So I think we can start marketing this thing beyond friends and family. Do you want to come help? And I said, sure. Well, what took you so long? And <laughs> I dropped everything and I came over. I don't think any of us knew what a wild journey it's going to be. And looking back almost seven years later, it's, it's definitely exceeded all of our dreams. I think thinking about the company and the team, the marketing team, every year as reinventing itself is really important to this journey. If you hang on to things that got you to this point, they're not going to get you to the next stage. You know, Amit, uh, one of his many great analogies is that like, even leadership in a startup is not like that rocket emoji that we tend to use and think that it, like in the cartoons, it takes you from earth to the moon. That doesn't really exist. If you look at the actual space shuttles that get to the moon, that they are multi-layered shuttles and they have one missile that takes them or one rocket system mm -hmm. that takes them just to the edge of the atmosphere. And then that breaks off and a new one ignites and that takes them to the moon's orbit. And then that falls off. And then a third will help them land, etc. And then a fourth will get them off the moon. So, when you think about that, you can think about it both in the sense of the skill set and the strategy that you need at different stages. And in some cases, it also means bringing in new people that have seen that next stage 
would know how to land on the moon. Like I could probably learn how to do it. It would be risky for the company. It would take me very long. So at some point, it's good to bring someone who's done that moon landing and step aside and, and watch them do the right thing for the company and for the team. So mm-hmm. yeah, long-winded answer to your question. Definitely had to reinvent the marketing function many times over from focusing on early awareness to demand gen and then category creation and then competitive differentiation based on how the category matured and how the market evolved and how the competition evolved. You've got to stay adaptable. And I think that goes for both individuals and companies. The ones who survive and thrive are the ones who adapt faster than anyone else. It's not necessarily having the strength or the money or the size or the brains. It's just being able to adapt the fastest. And, you know, evolution tells us that that's true in nature. I think it's true in business as well. Yeah. I mean, and especially, you know, the last call it three and a half years, four years, it's been adapt, 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 adapt. Yeah. We have no shortage of opportunities <laughs> to adapt. Absolutely. Exactly. As far as hiring then, like when you were growing that team, did you look for some of those people where they came in, they were like similar to you where, hey, this person seems to have some core talent and we want to help them essentially grow and evolve into roles as much as finding people to fit specific portions of the organization? Yes, I think different roles require different tactics on on hiring in terms of the background and skill set that you're looking for. So would I hire a brain surgeon if I needed brain surgery for potential rather than experience? Probably not. But when I went out looking for someone to help with our events or social media or content writing, I definitely favored potential and attitude and growth mode versus specific experience. And we did really, really well with those hires. There are certain professions where, A, I want to see everyone with an ability to learn. And there's ways of easing this out even during an interview. You ask folks, what's the last professional book that you've read? Where where do you go to learn about your craft? What podcasts do you listen to? What books or newsletters do you read? What conferences do you go to? Who do you follow on social media? And if they kind of go, um, you know, I haven't really had time last year to read or listen to anything, you go, okay, so how's this girl or guy learning? Where are they expanding their horizons? And that, that's kind of a bit of a warning sign. But if they can give you names and books and, and quotes, then you know, okay, these people are self-sufficient. They know how to learn and they know how to advance themselves. And for many, many roles that you know are going to change all the time, I would still hire for potential over experience. I'll give you an example. Social media, it still uh, entertains me when I see folks looking for someone with 12 years of running Twitter campaigns. Like, Who cares what social media channel they run right now? Because in one year, Twitter might not exist, as we know. It might be a new channel that we don't even know about right now. What I'm looking for is someone who understands basic human behavior and how humans interact with social media, and they're able to adapt their strategy to any social channel out there. So looking for specific experience on ridiculous things like that is to me entertaining, but others, it's probably tragic because they're hiring the wrong people. They're just hiring someone who happened to be working on a certain platform for a couple of years, but maybe that's not going to be what you need them to do in two years. So look for potential over experience where the role dictates it For, for certain things where there's just no substitute for, you know, deeper PMM experience or, or, uh, running a large, complicated function, you definitely need the experience there to give you a head start. Some people are going to be able to rise to the occasion if you see them exhibiting those behaviors in their current role. Sometimes you're going to have to make the decision to bring someone from the outside to elevate the whole function and the team. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious, 
working for an organization like Gong that is just so laser focused on the sales process and the data around it and making it as efficient as possible and throwing the best technology in the world at it. What was it like doing marketing for that organization? And what was the relationship between sales, marketing, and so on? And like, how did you use data as a means to tell the story of marketing, both to the sales team, but then also, you know, up the chain to the board and things like that? Yeah, I, I think it's it's fascinating. And honestly, it would be hard for me to go back to working for a company that's not as obsessed about sales and data and, as we call it internally, reality as Gong is. Sales and marketing alignment is something really, really important that I've, I've written and spoken a lot about. Here's a simple test for you marketing leaders out there. Do you know how your head of sales takes their coffee? Do they take cream, sugar? Is it non-dairy? Could it be tea? If you don't know the answer to that question, you're not truly aligned with your sales leadership. It means you've not had enough coffee, walk and talks or drinks or offsites or other meetings to truly understand what they are being challenged with, create a relationship that allows you to share your challenges and work together without finger pointing or blaming to decide what's the next best course of action. And that simple coffee test is one that I find very, very useful. I've, I've had marketers go, oh, shoot, you're right. I, I should set a bi-weekly coffee meeting with my head of sales, get to know them better, know what they're going through at home with their family, with their teams. This is a difficult time when many have to do layoffs, like show some empathy and compassion and get involved. And that's going to make dealing with your joint challenges so much easier. There is no marketer who can succeed without their sales team succeeding. It just doesn't exist because our role in marketing is to make sales easier through building brand, through building awareness, through creating pipeline, through getting them the right message, through getting out the right communications and creating the right opportunities for them to have conversations, meaningful conversations with prospects and customers. There's no way a marketer can be the employee of the month if sales is not hitting their targets. So create that relationship, obsess over the data, understand, oh, in mid-market, we're doing really well right now. Let's focus on enterprise right now where we're seeing a slump in pipeline. How can we fix that? What are the challenges we're seeing with leadership in that team? How can we mitigate them or bridge over them until we get that new hire next quarter? Get into that level of detail to support your sales leaders and you will do well. If you don't do that, if you just do your own thing, as the old sort of cliche of marketing, dumping a fishbowl full of business cards they picked up in a trade show over the wall and then blaming sales for not following up, that's not going to get you anywhere in your career. You have to make it work. You have to create that alignment with sales. And I like to think that we did that really, really well at Gong over many years. We've got a really good relationship between marketing and sales, a really candid relationship where we can hold ourselves accountable and point out problems that we're seeing in the process or in our team or in another team when we're talking together. And then we go and solve them together because sales understands that they're not going to go it alone. Mm -hmm. they, they could not be where they are without the marketing support that they've received. And marketing really doesn't have a lot of reasons to exist without having sales results to show for their work. Yeah. As far as the customer journey, then I'm sure it evolved over the seven years working at Gong. What does the buyer's journey look like today? Um, and like, how are you marketing to people? Like, what are the things that you're finding success in? And then most importantly, like, how are you measuring those things? Because I think when we talk to marketers, whether they're B2C or B2B, you know, the buyer's preferences have changed significantly over the past couple of years, probably spurred on by the pandemic. And there's a lot of that adapting going on. And at the end of the day, 
being able to measure for it, being able to understand and adapt is key. So curious how you've seen things shift and adjust and what are the things that you focus on from a data perspective? Yeah, so I think there's two trends that we are very aware of that I think everyone should be and act accordingly. One of them, there's this old uh, Forrester factoid that's been broadly quoted uh, from a few years ago, it might be almost 10 now, where they say that the average B2B buyer spends 70% of their buying journey before they talk to your salesperson, Mm -hmm. a vendor. And we've seen recent data from the last year showing that that number 70 has grown to 85%. And that has serious implications. Um, We just presented that last week at a conference in Chicago because that now means that the buyer is spending only 15% of her time speaking with vendors. And if she's speaking to maybe three vendors, that means you, Mr. Vendor, are getting 5% of the buyer's journey time and attention to make your case. Let that sink in and consider where is your buyer collecting her information? How easy are you making for her to do her research at her own pace, at her own time? And what is out there? Consider customer stories, consider word of mouth, consider review websites, consider all these things, analyst reports, the press, what is being said about you and how can you control some of that? And how can you, knowing that you assume that most of the buyer's journey is not on your website and not speaking with your salespeople, if you're just focused on getting the perfect sales deck and you're only going to get 5% of the time with buyers to show that off, then you're probably not going to get all the buyers that the competition is getting. So that's one thing. You have to be keenly aware of it and make sure you're investing in that ecosystem of content and awareness because that's where most of the buying journey is now done. Mm-hmm. The second thing, which I think for years, marketers have been pretending that the buyer journey is this neat funnel. We all have a slide somewhere in our deck that shows, oh, up here is where we're going to do the awareness and then we're going to go into consideration and then the decision. And then my, the favorite is, my favorite is when they just show it as a straight line. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, because that's how real life works, right? Yeah. So real life is far more messy than that. And the best definition I've heard is that it's it's not a funnel. It's a tornado. It's a tornado that your customers are engulfed in. And thinking about that, it means that you have to meet them everywhere that they are. Every conference they go to, every newsletter that they read, every social media that they're active on. um, Every user group meeting they go to, the emails that they open, their social feeds. So you have to think about that tornado. And sometimes that means that it's going to mess up your reporting. You're going to invest disproportionately in places where you won't see those conversions show up on the dashboards. But I think good marketers, A, find creative ways of measuring things by proxy sometimes Mm -hmm. or getting comfortable with certain things not being perfectly measurable. I, for one, am not obsessed about measuring every single thing because sometimes you can just see the results and you have to have this leap of faith of, I'm doing the right thing. If, if my customers are all going to show up in this digital or offline watering hole, I need to be there and I need to show up for them in the way that they want to, because that's where they're making a big part of their buying decision, even if I'm not going to see that immediate conversion on my dashboard. Mm-hmm. So understanding those, those two things about 90 or 85 to 90% of the buying journey now being done off your site and without your salespeople. And the neat funnel is just a myth that's an easy way of putting things on slides, but it's really life is more like the tornado and acting accordingly. I think those are the shifts that great marketers are, are paving the way on. Yeah. How do you orchestrate, I guess, all those different touch points? Like, do you think of it as we want to be in as many places as possible? And if it's not perfect, that's fine, but we just need to be there. 
or do you select a few key touch points that you just really, really perfect and then know that some of that will then trickle over to some of those other touch points? So that's a great question. No marketing team can do everything. You know, I've been the first marketer at five companies. So I felt on my flesh what uh, marketing <laughs> on a shoestring feels like. I've been at a large multi-million dollar marketing budget company like Gong and I've talked to, to marketers at much larger companies and they all have the same resource problems. So, you know, if you're a marketer out there at a small startup imagining, oh, if I were only Google, I'd have these infinite resources. No, that Google marketers are also complaining about the lack of resources, just like you are. I promise you. <laughs> it's a different scale of lacking, but it's still lacking of resources. There's always more opportunities to do things that we want than resources that we have. So we do have to be very restrained about what we're going to do and find those few channels and Every company has a very small number of channels that actually bring in 80% of the pipeline and the awareness, mm -hmm. focus most of the work there. And then I found that setting aside five to 10% of the budget for experiments to expand our horizons and test things that I know some of them are going to fail, but some things are going to prove very valuable and I'll want to double down on them. That's also important getting alignment on with your CFO, with your CEO. That's how we were able to experiment with everything from out of home through food delivery robots all the way to two Super Bowl commercials. I know most B2B startups don't get to do that. We made a case. It started with this wild long shot of this could be a long-term brand awareness thing. The first Super Bowl commercial turned out creating our record week of pipeline creation in a very measurable way that you could argue with. So you don't know what you're missing until you try these things. And there's usually a way doing a pilot in a measured way that doesn't put you know your entire budget at risk and will give you enough information to know if, if this was a worthwhile risk or not. A measured pilot, like a Super Bowl commercial. <laughs> you, you joke, you joke, but, but yes, I'll give the 30-second version because I've, I've discussed this in length in, in many other podcasts. People are imagining that I spend five, six million dollars on the media and a few other millions on the on the creative. Here's what really happened. I spend like, I want to say maybe $250,000 on that Super Bowl commercial on the media and less than 100,000 on creating the creative. This was a very controlled, now even those numbers of like sub 300,000 might be a lot of money for yeah. startups, but for a larger company, that's kind of peanuts, right? That's that way you spend in like two weeks of marketing. Yeah. And what if you decide to concentrate that in one big campaign and don't do the national spot that everyone assumes you're doing that costs five or $6 million, but do regional spots. Mm -hmm. uh, we found that since the largest concentration of our customers at the time was in the San Francisco Bay Area in New York. I could buy those two regions for literally a fraction of what the national spot costs and still hit like 70 or 80% of my target audience. So you can find creative ways like that. Or if you're doing out of home, you don't have to buy the biggest billboard in Times Square. Here's a fun fact. You can actually spend like $2,500 buying a digital billboard in Times Square that rotates for a day with seven other ads. You get a photographer there to take a nice photo with lots of people yep. around it, and then you make that thing explode on social media, and that's the best spend $2,500 you could spend on media. So there's always, or mostly always, a hack or a way to pilot something or to, to hack something to, to look like it was a much larger investment, still make the impact that you're looking for. Yeah. Where do you do your thinking on these things? Where do you discover these hacks? 
Usually when I'm at the gym, like I come out and frantically start slapping my team members. Oh, we should try this and we should do that. That's when I'm away from all the screens, that's when I can really clear my mind and start thinking of things. Or when I see something inspiring that usually a B2C company does. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, you know, what Lego or Adidas or Disney are doing, that that's where a lot of inspiration comes from because B2B tend to be more buttoned up and tend to kind of do more of the same and it seems like everyone's copying each other. Whereas I think consumer brands have long understood that just speaking to customers as if they were humans with desires and fears and wants, that's kind of the way to go. And if you tap into something that's unique, that connects them with your brand, that's pretty much always going to work. And I, I love taking my inspiration from, from those kind of moves. Yeah. B2C also has the advantage of highly trained, very large creative agencies that are also coming up with a bunch of great ideas that you can look at that idea and be like, hmm, that's interesting. How do I then apply that to B2B and, you know, our budget? You know, there's not a lot of B2B agencies that are engaging, you know, the JWTs and the, you know, Wyden Kennedys of the world. I agree. I, I agree. But I, I think it's kind of B2B, we brought that on ourselves. It's not mm. that the agencies are dying to work with us. I mean, when, when we look for an agency to do our Super Bowl commercial or our rebranding, we have agencies lighting up mostly from B2C. So agencies would love to work with B2B. It's just B2B need to accept that they they can and should get creative and unbutton that collar and, and take off that tie if they want to really communicate with their customers as the human beings that they are. Yeah. On that same tact, you know, I think one thing that we've seen, at least in the B2B space, is the rise of LinkedIn and the LinkedIn influencer. And I think you've got, you know, 30-something thousand, you know, followers where do you think that goes? Does it just become an echo chamber where it's like a bunch of people talking to the same people over and over again? Or do you think it's something that can actually break beyond that and actually become like, once you kind of get through the initial maybe sales awareness or oh, sorry, awareness, you know, consideration bump, like, does it keep going from that? Or do you think it, it's going to cap out at a certain spot? It's going to cap out within the realm of, of the markets that you're serving. Some markets are larger than others, but I do think it is still super, super effective. Beyond the 30-something followers that I personally have, I'm even more proud of the 200,000 followers that Gong's corporate page has. Mm, it's great. We recently crossed that mark. And it really prides me because it shows what a great content strategy and a different approach to building brand on the most serious business platform looks like. There are companies that are more than twice our size in revenue and employees that don't have half our followers on LinkedIn because they're still putting out the same old boring product updates and webinar invites and look at what this analyst wrote about us. And Gong took a very different approach that, that I can summarize as edutainment, which, as you might guess, is the combination of educating and entertaining your followers because that's what people want. Sometimes you don't want to... What do I mean sometimes? You never want to download a 20-page <laughs> white paper but in between meetings or God forbid, when you're multitasking, sometimes you do want a, a funny meme or a piece of poetry to amuse you in the middle of your day or, or see a funny meme. Sometimes you do want a, a factoid that provides value to your business, but not something that takes you three forms to get through to only get 40 pages that you don't have time to go through. But give me like one chart with one insight that I can do something with today. And we've been really, really good at developing that strategy, understanding the LinkedIn algorithm and how it changed over the years and giving it what it needed to surface our content to our followers. And they kept bringing in more followers and more followers and having that organic audience, both on social and then on email as well, 
gives you a very cost-effective way of communicating with your audience versus mm -hmm. paid advertising and trade shows, which are always going to be very, very expensive. For sure, for sure. As far as that content strategy evolved, I guess, like everyone I think now is, you know, investing in content, whether that be long form blog posts, research papers, all the way through to the, you know, six second videos or, you know, uh, things in memes and things along those lines. You know, when you started at Gong, like how did you build out the content practice? How did it evolve? And like, how did you stay up to date on kind of that shifting uh, consumption behavior of the, of the market? First, maybe I'll start with the easier one, which is keeping up to date with what's happening on LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn, like all of the other platforms, Google and Facebook, et cetera, they, they have engineering blogs where you can geek out for days on what they're doing and what they're testing. And it's really worth keeping up to date with these things and constantly testing your content in different formats on the same platform. So mm -hmm. even I'll give you an example of a simple A-B test that every marketer probably does with their display advertising and landing pages. But when was the last time we tried taking the same piece of content, posting it as an image, as a text only, and as a video to LinkedIn and dividing it among different audiences and see how they perform? That's really, really important. There's a fun anecdote I remember from a few years ago. We've been an alpha customer of LinkedIn on all of their new content offerings from the LinkedIn live videos to, to many other things. And one fun one I remember is we, we read on their engineering blog that they just introduced a new factor called the dwelling factor hmm. um, to posts. So they were giving more points to posts that caused people to stop scrolling and just stare at them for a while. And they made them more visible, getting them more traction. So of course I was at the gym that, that day and I started thinking, well, what could I do to make people really stop and stare at my post for a long time. So I, I called up my creative team and said, hey, can we create one of those Where's Waldo images but hide Bruno, our bulldog mascot, in it and have people look for it on LinkedIn? I want to test something. And the next day they posted that. And what do you know? We got like thousands of impressions and over a thousand likes and comments because LinkedIn really favored that post because it made people stop and stare at it for yeah. like two minutes. How else would you do that on LinkedIn? So I, I'm not suggesting that that post provided a ton of business value, but it yeah. was a great example of putting the latest engineering changes of the feed to the test and then using that to provide more meaningful business updates that, that actually get people to dwell on because that's what was going strong at the time. They, they've since tweaked it and of course yeah, yeah. reduced its support, but, but that was a fun one. Um, I feel bad for the designer who had to stay up all night intricately drawing. The, you know. I know. It's so <laughs> worth it, though. That, that was a really fun post. But to answer the broader question on, on the content strategy, so very, very early in, in the days at, at Gong, we decided to create something that is unique versus you know people just spewing out content, not really thinking of the strategy, but more of the quantity. The quantity doesn't matter in and of itself. Yes, if you, if you create more content and post more often, you have more chances of engaging your audience. That's a given. But if you post stuff that is obvious or trivial or generally available that you've curated from other places and other sources, it's not going to be nearly as effective as creating something unique with a voice of your own that makes people stop and think and add something to their day. And that's what we tried to create with the Gong Labs content series, where we used unique data from analyzing our customers' calls and emails and posting about new findings, what the data says really works in sales. What is the best opener for a cold call? Should you say, 
hey, Andrew, how are you? Or, hey, Andrew, how have you been? Mm-hmm. We tested that on thousands of sales calls. Do you have a guess which works better? Uh, I would say, how have you been? Which probably works better. Yeah, you'd be right. But but few people use that. Yeah. Uh, it feels a little too personal, right? But that's exactly why it works. It's a pattern disrupt. And it makes the prospect think that, oh, do I know you? Like, have we spoken before? By the time they understand that this is a cold call, they've already given you some time of day that you might not otherwise have been given. We analyze data to find that salespeople who curse and swear on their sales calls have 8% higher win rates than salespeople who don't swear and keep it clean. We have a strong hypothesis on why that is. We found that when, when they do this after the prospect uses some of that vocabulary as well, they get the highest win rates. And our hypothesis is that similar to what Chris Voss wrote on and never split the difference. It's just a, another form of a mirroring technique. Totally. So, Prospects want to feel that you're speaking the same language, and, and uh, we've all been told to cross our legs and arms when our interviewer does that in front of us. So this is yet another version of that. People connect with people they like, and they like people who are similar to them. So if you use the same kind of language, you'll get that. So that's the type of content that we love publishing that gets a ton of engagement because some of these things people have been thinking about but never had the data to prove or disprove what they were thinking. And some of it is just brand new and there was no way to measure and, and discover these things without technologies like Gong. So we were fortunate to find this path of using our technology to create a lot of this content and it's it's done really, really well. And other companies, you know, we've picked a topic and consistently written about it for years, enriching the state of the art by telling us something we didn't already know and making their audience yearn for that next update. When is your next update coming out? That is the holy grail of content marketing that you want to create. Yeah. And I think that the benefit you had too is also selling into the sales culture, which is just a interesting culture to deal with and <laughs> relate with. And I think people have a tendency because it's so results driven to be like, I need more information to become more, re- to do better at my job, you know? Absolutely. I, I think one of the things that drew me to Gong, people asked me what brought me in. It was one, the leadership, because I already worked with Amit and Ewan. Two was the product. When, when I saw it, my jaw dropped and I realized this had the potential to change or create an industry, which it did. And three was the buyer persona. I thought, and I was correct, that selling or marketing to sales professionals is going to be a lot of fun because they tend to be very vocal if they like or love something that you're doing. They will post all over and talk about it, but they'll do the same if they hate something that you're doing. They will post all over and talk about it, and that gives you immediate feedback, and that's the best thing because in the past, I've had to market to audiences from IT professionals to diamond manufacturers, and let me tell you, some of them are not out there on social media. They don't care about your marketing as much. They don't write about it, and it just takes them much longer to understand if what you're doing is landing well or not. And with salespeople, you get instant feedback. If it's good, they'll tell you. If it sucks, they will tell you. It's a good data feedback loop. Absolutely. And it allows us to get better faster. We, we can stop doing the things that suck and do more of the things that work. Yeah, for sure. So you were telling me a little bit before we started about what's happening in the next few months for Gong and for you. So I'd love to, for you to just talk a little bit about Gong Engage and kind of what that's going to be doing for the market. Yeah, so we just published our uh, latest survey a couple of days ago showing after we surveyed over 400 buyers and sellers on their current sales engagement solutions, we found that only 16% of users of those sales engagement systems are happy with the systems that they're using. So clearly the legacy systems have not been providing the market with what they're looking for, with some of the biggest complaints being the low response rates to those automated emails that the legacy systems allow you to send 
static emails to like 10,000 people. If you had a bad email, you're now sending it to more people faster. It's not making your email better. And they're complaining about having to switch between too many systems. We found that salespeople use on average 10 different systems to get through their day. That's way too much. It's costing organizations a lot of money on multiple vendors that you need to integrate together. It's creating a terrible seller experience. And the worst part is creating a bad buying experience because people don't feel that their information is being passed along and they get asked the same questions as I'm sure we've all experienced being passed over from one phone person to another. And so we are working on a new gong approach to sales engagement that we'll be debuting very, very soon to the market. And it's going to incorporate generative AI. It's going to be a full funnel sales engagement system from early prospecting to deal closing and even customer renewals. And I think it's got the potential to really change the market, just like we did several times before, originally with conversation intelligence, and then by creating and leading the revenue intelligence category. Last year, we released our approach to forecasting, which has taken the market by storm and sold about as many licenses as the legacy vendors took about a decade to sell. So sales engagement is about to go through a similar change in the next few months. And uh, I'm really excited to see that hit the market soon. That's awesome. What's your... uh marketing take on getting that in front of people? Like what's your, not to give away your state secrets on where you're going, but like, what are the things that you're leaning on the most? Um, I think one of them is just the fact that the legacy players 10 years ago used what was then the state of the art technology and coming in now with the last mover advantage, people talk a lot about first mover advantage, but there are many advantages being the last mover. Mm. We get to benefit from all this generative AI and new technologies that were not available 10 years ago. And it will take these companies a lot longer to try and adapt their technology or rebuild it to standards that customers are expecting today. But we get the advantage of building it fresh on the latest generative AI technologies and giving customers what they need right now without carrying that baggage of 10 years of software and integrations and customers that other legacy players are, are carrying. So that's definitely part of the approach that we're taking too, is this is built upon the already category leading revenue intelligence platform for gongs that we have almost 4,000 customers who swear by this platform every day. So they are very much looking forward to doing even more of their sales processes on our platform. And I think we'll keep some of the other stuff for the actual launch. All right. Sounds good. Well, Udi, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, it's been fun. I think everyone listening will uh, will get a kick out of some of the the stories, but also just like the way that you approach things, because it's definitely unique and hopefully get them thinking about stuff and how they can apply it to their own world. So thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening to Data Driven CMO. Take a moment to subscribe so you can drop in on future conversations with CMOs who are ahead of the curve in content and data, using both to move their businesses forward. Learn more how the right data can reveal your organization's true audience journey at Notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. And thanks for listening.